Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. What we've been doing here during this Advent season is going through a series on the incarnation or God with us. And we are in the last sermon in that series, the fourth of four sermons uh, on this incarnation. We began uh, by considering the pre-existence of the Son of God, that He had no beginning, was not made, has existed for all eternity. And then we considered how this eternal Son of God entered into our creation, and that was through the virgin birth. So, second sermon of the series, we considered... Uh, this miraculous virgin birth, Jesus being born to Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, with this pre-existent eternal Son who then becomes a man, what we have is a Savior who is divine and human at the same time, one who is God and one who is man. And so, last week we considered the, the godness of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, and Today, now, we're going to focus on the humanity, the humanity of Jesus from John 1, 1 through 5 and verse 14. In other words, what we're saying here, uh, as we consider Jesus, you know, all kinds of thoughts might come to mind as to exactly who He was or what He was like. You know, He was not an angel. Uh, he, he was not a, a ghost. Uh, he was not like a, a god of Greek mythology like Zeus. Uh, he was not a superhero. He was actually an ordinary man, an ordinary man that you might not even recognize walking down the street. Nothing in him that would have drawn your attention, the Scripture says. He was an ordinary man, but also God. And that's what makes this incarnation thing just so mind-blowing and astonishing. Uh, what we've been reviewing and thinking about during the sermon series and what we're thinking about during Christmas, what Christmas is about is something that is totally unique. It never happened before Jesus was born, it never happened afterward, and it's never going to happen again, this God born as a man. And so I want to remind you of a couple of quotes that I shared with you at the very start of this series. I'm going to have to get used to looking to the left here now. Uh, <clears throat> Herman Bavick, remember, says this, the incarnation is the central fact of the entire history of the world. I just think that's such an astonishing quote, and I want to remind you of that. That's what we're thinking about. That's what Christmas is about. There's lots of amazing things that have happened in, in history, but nothing more amazing and noteworthy than what happened at the first Christmas. And then Stephen Wellam says this, there's no greater need for the church today than to think rightly about Jesus, to think and contemplate and reflect upon this doctrine of the incarnation. So I'm just going to offer a very simple application for us today. Just kind of putting this in the front of the sermon rather than at the end. Uh, a very simple application that I want to encourage you and me uh, to do, particularly in this Christmas season, is just to simply think more about Jesus. Just to think more about the incarnation. Just let that fill your mind as you're drifting off to sleep, as you're at the red light in your car at the intersection, and your mind just wanders. Where does it go? Where does your mind go? Maybe it could go a little more often to the incarnation. Think, think about this. Do you remember uh, in Luke chapter 2 when the baby was, uh, Jesus was born to, to Mary and the shepherds came to visit Mary? 
The text tells us that what Mary did is she treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. She was just overwhelmed with the astonishing news of the incarnation. So she reflected, she treasured these things, and that's what I want us to do today. We're going to think about these things. We're going to think about the incarnation. It's going to require uh, some careful nuance as to what exactly is happening when uh, the preexistent Son of God becomes human. And so let's return to our text. If you're able to stand, please do so. You might remember uh, last week as we looked at John chapter 1, we heard about this this word. Uh, Last week's sermon was basically about one word, the word, the word that in the Greek is the logos, and we learned about this logos being with God, but also being God. That is, the logos is divine, but now we're really going to focus today not on one word, but on one verse, and that's going to be verse 14. But let's look at verses 1 through 5 first, just to get some background, and then we'll skip forward to verse 14. So John 1, 1 through 5, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. But now, looking ahead to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Holy Spirit, we ask You now to open our eyes and our hearts to behold wonderful things in Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So, three things that I want you to see here regarding the humanity of Christ. This is going to be kind of a topical sermon. We're going to be looking at other texts, but we're, we're really just thinking through what is said there in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Everything we're going to be thinking about is kind of an outworking of of that particular verse. So the first thing I want you to see is this, that Christ became human without diminishing His divinity. Okay? Christ became human without diminishing His divinity. When Jesus was born in that manger as a man, there was nothing about His divinity that was was lost. And so if we look here at at verse 14, uh, again, that, that word, word is the word logos, this pre-existent, eternal Son of God, it says here that He became flesh, that is, He added to Himself a human nature and dwelt among us. That verb, therefore, dwelt among us, actually uh, literally means that He tabernacled among us. Uh, You might remember in Old Testament history in the book of Exodus when Israel was released from Egypt and began to wander in the wilderness that God commanded that a tabernacle would be built, and this would be a place where God Himself would come and dwell with His people. And it even says regarding to Moses that it says that God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. That's God wanting to be near and close to His people. So in the Old Testament, 
A tabernacle was built where God could be with His people. And now what this verse is telling us is that God is going to dwell with His people in a whole new way. Not just in a tabernacle, but in a man. Jesus of Nazareth, God is going to dwell with us. He's going to pitch His tent. He's going to set up residence. He's going to come and stay for a while and live among us. That's what verse 14 is telling us. God has moved into the neighborhood everybody. And he's got a house, and he's staying here for a time. And so that's what 114 here is telling us. That's what the incarnation is really all about. Last week, you might remember that I asked you, where would you go in Scripture to prove that Jesus is God? Remember that? Well, where would you go in Scripture to prove the divinity of Christ? I guess you'll have to go listen to last week's sermon on the website if you want to know the answer to that. But today, what I want to do is pose a similar question. Where would you go in Scripture to prove that Jesus was a man? You know, what happens if you're in a conversation and somebody says, yeah, I think Jesus is an angel? How do you disprove that? John 1.14, what we are talking about today would be sufficient for that, but word became flesh. It's, you know, kind of hard language maybe to understand. How about 1 Timothy 2.5? For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Acts 2.22, men of Israel, this is Peter, <clears throat> hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Peter refers to him as, as a man. Romans 5.15, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. So we're holding that Jesus is divine, but we're also holding that He is a man. Now, th th these two things are clearly taught in Scripture, so we always have to be careful. You know, you can look at a Scripture that says Jesus is God and think, well, if He's God, there's no way He can be a man. Or you look at Scriptures that say He's a man, and we can say, well, if He's a man, there's no way He can be God. But the Scriptures don't allow us to reason that way. We have to look at the whole counsel of God. The Scripture clearly says that He's both, God and man. But here's what happened. In the early church, for the decades, centuries of the early church, the question uh, was occupying the minds of the leaders of the church, exactly how did this happen that the Word became flesh? How did these two come together? How did they unite? What did that look like? The divinity and humanity of Christ, they, they join? What? How? What? And, and when they did, what resulted? You know, sometimes people talk about, we need to get back to the early church and being like the early church. You know what the early church was doing? Thinking about these things. Pondering these things in their hearts, trying to get it right according to what Scripture said. How is it that the flesh and the Word have come together. And what happened is that all sorts of attempts were made by various people, and very often people were wrong. And when they got, when the church judged them to be wrong, they, they were called heretics. <laughs> they were considered to be in error. And, and I just want to show you some of these things. I want to give you three examples of some attempts that the early church made to try to explain how the Word became flesh and how they, they're, just, they're just not quite right. And it's important that we get it right. So, this might be the first time you've heard some of these things, but as I've said throughout this series, that this is basic Christianity, really. This is not Presbyterian stuff. <laughs> this is stuff that all Christians have come to accept. So, here's the, the first error heresy regarding Jesus in the early centuries of the church. 
was that people said that, that he had a human body but not a human mind. And it was called Apollinarianism. That's just based on a guy named Apollinarius. He was the one who, who taught it. So kind of the idea here is that, um, that Jesus didn't add to himself, uh, or, or that the, the eternal Son of God did not add to himself uh, a full human nature, but instead the Logos, the Word, was kind of like deposited into a human body. So Jesus had a human body, but not necessarily a human mind. So it's it, kind of like water being poured into a pitcher, the Logos, the Word of God is like the water being poured into a pitcher, which is like a human body. And so some were, were teaching this, and the church judged that to be an error, a, a heresy. And the reason why is because <clears throat> it's not just our bodies that need to be saved, it's our minds also. Uh, anybody who has had a, a struggle with, with mental illness or bipolar disorder or depression, uh, problems, dysfunctions of the mind, know <clears throat> how important it is that the redemption offered to us in the gospel is not just for our bodies but for our minds as well. And so the phrase that the early church came up with was, was this, what is not assumed is not healed. That is, if Jesus did not assume a human mind, then the human mind cannot be healed. He has to assume the fullness of humanity in order to save the fullness of humanity. So uh, this was judged to be a, a heresy. But there were other attempts to try to describe the connection or the joining of the human and the divine. And some said that the human and divine are actually two separate persons. And this was called... Nestorianism. And so, uh, what this view said is that in, in Jesus you had the divine Logos as one person, but that the Logos, the Word, was separate and independent of the human person of Jesus. So, so there were, were two distinct, separate persons acting independently of each other. So the, the correct way to say it, to get very, put a fine point on it, is to say that there are two natures in Jesus, divine and human, but not two persons. It's not, it's not like Jesus was a schizophrenic. He, he, there wasn't like a divine and a human person having a conversation with each other and trying to decide who now is going to assert each other. It's the one Son of God acting through the divine and the human. At the same time, you might think, well, what in the world? Why does that matter? Well, because if there's two separate persons and you have the man Jesus dying on the cross, you don't have the Son of God dying on the cross. It's just a mere man, a man separate and independent of the Son of God, and therefore unable to completely and totally save us. We need something more than just a man to die for us. We need the God-man to die for us, and Nestorianism doesn't, doesn't really allow for that. And so, uh, there's a, another one, and this idea is that the human and the divine were actually kind of blended into a third thing, and this was called Eutychianism. And so, there were people who were saying that when the Word became flesh, that what happened is they mixed together, and what came out was a man who was not fully God or fully man. A third thing, 
maybe, hope this doesn't sound irreverent, but kind of like mixing oil and vinegar. You put it together, and then you have a different third blended substance that's not really oil or vinegar. So the Eutychians were saying that that's what's happening. So he's not really God. He's not really man. He's he's something different. And the early church judged this also to be heresy. And so what what I want you to see see here this morning is that the the church has done a lot of work trying to figure this, this stuff out. Many decades of debate and concern Uh, because it was important to the early church to think rightly about the most important thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. And so they came up with this formulation uh, in a place called Chalcedon. This is in 451, like 1,600 years ago. And they said this, we all with one voice, so this is the agreement of the church, teach the confession of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity the same truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and a body. They're not a Apollinarian. Acknowledged in two natures, not two persons, which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. That that last phrase is, is really the one that's kind of gone down in history is the thing that Christians have held on to. No confusion, no change, no division, no separation. Uh, If you're a member here at uh, New Life, you are a Chalcedonian Christian. I don't know if you knew that, but you are, (laughs) at least according to your profession. Uh, The elders and pastors on staff here at New Life, we're Chalcedonians, we could say. In in other words, we we just embrace orthodoxy as it has been handed down regarding this union of the Logos with flesh. Uh, this is important again, friends. The reason why is, is because we, we have to maintain both. These, these errors are serious. If the Savior is not God, He has no power to save. He can't overcome the powers of death. Nobody can overcome the powers of death except God. If He's not God, He doesn't have authority to forgive you of your sins. I mean, your spouse, your friend might forgive you for the sins that you committed against them, but who's going to forgive you for the sins you committed against God, for the sins you committed against a number of different people in your lives? Who's going to forgive you of those things? You need a Savior who's God and has that authority. We need a Savior who's God, but we also need a Savior who is man, because if He's not man, He can't serve as a second Adam. Remember in the garden, Adam is the one who messed everything up by rebelling against God. And disobeying his command, what we need is another Adam, another, per, another man to come along and serve in our place and represent us before God. We, we need one who's one of us. That's what Jesus says. He's one of us. But if we deny his humanity, we can't say that. But we also need a Savior who's man because we also we, we need a Savior who can understand us too. We need a Savior who can sympathize with us. And that leads us to the second point. Christ became human to sympathize with your weakness. He came to sympathize with your weakness. So, this is uh, why the Word became flesh, at least one reason why. If we look at Hebrews 4, here's what we see. Here's what we, see. we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. This is referring to Jesus 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because the divine Logos, the divine Son of God has become man, what that means is that He has entered into the fullness of human experience and can totally understand everything that you go through as a human being in a fallen world. He can sympathize with you, and so when you go to Him with your struggles and you kneel before Him and you pour out your heart to Him, you're not going to be met with rejection or coldness or indifference or a God who says, I'm sorry, I'm too busy running the universe, I can't identify with your tiny small problems. I think that's the way a lot of us think about God. Why do I bother God with these things? He's got bigger issues to deal with than my worries about what's going to happen tomorrow. But no, we have a Messiah who is a man and therefore can fully identify with all that you have been going through. I, I've told you before that uh, <clears throat> I've been reading this biography of Ulysses Grant, and I finally finished it by uh, the, the grace of, of God. It's a long book, but <clears throat> um, it's just a, a great biography. And I, the thing that just stuck with me the most about Ulysses Grant's life. But Ulysses Grant was the general of the Union Army in Civil War, uh, <clears throat> largely responsible for winning that war, largely responsible because of his victory for freeing the slaves, for abolishing the uh, institution of slavery in the 1800s. <clears throat> and so Ulysses Grant was this guy who was, he was in charge, he was the general, he, he was the superior, uh, he was famous, he was well-known. And yet, the thing that everybody noticed about Ulysses Grant is that when he was in a group, you would never know that he was the general. There was nothing distinguishing about him. He didn't have this fancy general's uniform on. There was nothing that made him appear. There were people who were just surprised. They said, that's, that's General Grant right there. And people would go, you're kidding me. What, him? He just looks like an ordinary guy. In fact, he's got dirt all over his uniform. And so there's a picture there of, of the incarnation. God, the one who is in charge, comes into our experience and gets his boots dirty, gets dirty in the day-to-day -day existence of living a man on this earth. And so the soldiers who were under General Grant appreciated him so much because they knew he was a, a, a soldier at one time, and so they knew that he could understand, he could sympathize with what they were going through, and he could, they could approach him. And so he was in charge, but he was also like one of them. That, that's kind of like what Jesus is. And so here in <clears throat> Hebrews 4, um, we see that what's really being talked about here is this nature of temptation, that Jesus has been tempted uh, as we are, and yet he is without sin. Now, as you think about, again, the union of the divine and the human natures, I mean, this kind of brings questions to mind, doesn't it? I mean, if we're going to think about this, right? We're thinking, like Stephen Wellham told us, we're thinking about Jesus. Like Mary, she pondered these things in her heart. Questions might arise here, like, well, if, if Jesus is God, could He really have been tempted? I mean, was it even possible for, for God to sin? And if it wasn't possible for God to sin, can we really say it was temptation? I mean, all of us know what it's like to be tempted, right? That's a very human experience. We all deal with it every single day. And we all have our various different kinds of temptations. 
And we struggle with it, and we fail, and we fall to our temptations very frequently, and we, we go away discouraged. What this text is telling us, Jesus was a man, He was tempted to. He knows what you're going through. He knows. He's been there. And so, what do we do with this? Well, has He really been there? I mean, He's God. Of course, He overcame temptation. Well, the, the way to understand this, again, is to think about these two natures of Jesus, His human nature and His divine nature. In His human nature, He was tempted. We know that because that's what the text says. It couldn't be any clearer, right? One who in every respect has been tempted, as we are. So, in Jesus' human nature, yes, He was tempted, but it is also true. We have to say that according to His divine nature, He could not have sinned. That's true. It would be impossible for God to sin. There are some things God can't do. He can't die. He can't not be faithful to His promises. He can't sin. So, the divine nature of Jesus cannot sin, but, but the human nature can. And so, Jesus is, is tempted. He's really and truly tempted. He does experience this temptation. And in fact, I would say this, that Jesus faced temptations that were stronger and more challenging than any temptation that you and I have ever experienced. And one of the reasons why is because of His continually being without sin, it says. I mean, if you think of a, let, let think of a, think of a weightlifting competition, and you have one guy who picks up this weight and he holds it above his head, and he just holds it up for the length of time that is necessary, and then here's another guy and he picks that up and he lifts it up over his head for like two seconds and drops it. Who is the one who is showing the more strength? Who is the one who is enduring the pressure more? Isn't it the one who held that weight lift up as long as he could, as long as he needed to? And that's what we have in Jesus, the divine human man who withstood temptation before him throughout his entire life, never submitted to one temptation of thought, word, or deed. The reason he's able to do that is because he's divine. The reason that He can understand your temptation is because He's human. And we, we, need, we need it both. So, the, the glory of the incarnation and what we're talking about today is, again, that Jesus has entered into to the fullness of human experience. He was a real man. That means He, he grew up. He, he grew physically. He grew in His gaining of knowledge. He was a little baby. He went through puberty. He experienced the various frailties of life, like being hungry and being thirsty and being tired. He entered into vulnerable human relationships. He had relationships with parents and siblings and friends and enemies. All the kinds of things that you and I go through all throughout our lives. Jesus went through it all. And so, Augustine says it this way, the maker of man became man that he ruler of the stars might be nourished at the breast of Mary, that He, the bread, might be hungry, that He, the fountain, might thirst, that He, the light, might sleep, that He, the way, might be wearied in the journey, and He, life itself, might die. This is something else about Jesus taking on a human nature, entering into the fullness of human experience, 
means that he was vulnerable to death as well. But here's something else to think about here in this point before we move on, is that Jesus also experienced a fully emotional life as well. And so all of us deal with our emotions, right? I mean, emotions can be domineering in some of our lives. Sometimes we feel happy, sometimes we feel sad. Some of you deal with melancholy, depressive emotions that kind of persist in your life. Emotions are complicated. We sometimes don't even understand why we feel the way we do, because that's part of what it is to be human. We're emotional beings. Jesus was human. He was emotional also. Scripture says that He sighed, that He groaned. It says in some cases He was indignant. He was angry by what He saw. He sometimes had a heart that uh, erupted in pity, in compassion. He shed tears when his friend Lazarus died. He mourned. He grieved the loss of a friend. He was in deep anguish when he was hanging on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, he has experienced these, these deep emotions. And so, again, friends, when you go through those emotions, when you're shedding your tears, remembering the loved ones who have died in your life, when you are groaning with sorrow for whatever it is that is weighing down upon you, when you are filled with anguish because of some injustice that you have suffered, what does verse 16 say here at the end? Got to go back. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So in the troubled low points of your humanity, go to Jesus. He's there. He understands. He hears. He listens. He enters into your suffering with you. One other question here. Have you ever thought about this? Did Jesus laugh? I mean, in His emotional life, did He tell jokes? Did He even smile? We don't have anything actually in the Scriptures that say He laughed or smiled. I think He probably did, just because it doesn't tell us in the Gospels doesn't mean it didn't happen. But we're not, we're not told, did He laugh? Was He a joyful person? Here's what's really interesting. The one time that we see joy ascribed to Jesus, I think it's the one time, but at least this one time, is in Hebrews 12 where it says, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. You want to know what made Jesus happy? Dying for you. Filled Him with joy. That gave Him happiness. He was glad to do it. And as one who was emotional, He felt that emotion, He felt that joy, He felt that gladness as he laid down his life for sinners. One other thing to consider here about the humanity of Jesus, and that is this, that he became human to save you from your sins. He became human. He added to himself a human nature so that you could be saved from your sins. Here's another question that might arise. Was it necessary for the Word, the eternal divine preexistent Son of God, to become man? Was that necessary? Did it have to happen? I think if I could do the cheap way out, I'm going to say yes and no. Uh, there's one sense we could say no because, friends, God was not obligated to save anybody. He was not obligated to give Himself for your salvation or for mine. But having decided in eternity past in His love and mercy that He was going to save sinners, then yes, 
He did have to become a man. He did have to become human, and that's what Hebrews 2 tells us. He had to be made like his brothers. That's just a reference to being human. He had to be human in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to turn away the wrath of God for the sins that his people have committed. He had to become human. He had to take on a human nature for your salvation and and for mine. And, And he did that so that he could deal with the problem of sin, the sins of his people. Now, you might be saying this morning, Um, Maybe you're here this morning for the first time. Maybe you're not a regular churchgoer. Um, But you might be saying to yourself as you see this verse that, you know, I don't think I really have sins to be saved from. I mean, you keep talking about Jesus dying for sins, but I'm not really convinced I'm much of a sinner. I'm a decent person. I do the best I can. I'm honest. I'm not in jail. haven't committed any crimes. I'm a decent person. I'm okay. I don't need your forgiveness. But maybe, maybe that's what you're thinking. I don't know. I, I would say the, the Scriptures would say something to the contrary. <laughs> so Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. James 2, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So I'm not denying that you're, humanly speaking, a good person. <laughs> Generally speaking, maybe, maybe you are a very decent, respectful, faithful, honest, hardworking person. I'm not denying that. But according to James 2, you fail in just one point. You're guilty of all of it. That means you need a Savior. Christianity Explored has this great illustration, which I'm sure I've probably used before, but, but they say this. Imagine that everything you've ever thought in your life and every inclination of your heart throughout your whole life could be projected up onto a screen for the whole world to see, including your spouse, everything you've thought about your spouse, everything you've thought about your children, everything children you've thought about your parents, everything you've thought about your friends, every little plan that you've devised, all the resentment, the anger, the jealousy, the envy, all of that is up for everybody to see. How do you feel about that? You happy with that? You okay with that? I'm guessing that everybody in this room is saying, no, nah, I don't think I'd like that. That what you're, when, you, when you imagine that, what comes into your mind is, is a degree of shame and guilt. And it's because you know you're not really that good of a person. That you have fallen short of a holy and righteous standard. And so what that means is, yeah, you do need somebody to save you from your sins. And that's exactly what the incarnation is telling us has happened. This pre-existent, eternal Son of God, the one who has created all things and the one who has created you, this invisible God who had no blood to shed, took on a human nature so that he could offer it up on a cross and shed blood for you. And that by shedding that blood in his human nature, he has done everything necessary to wipe away all of your sins and all of those thoughts that you've had if you will simply trust him and receive him as your Savior. You might say to yourself, how do I do this? How do I become a Christian? 
You know, that would be the, the, the greatest, most joyful thing I, I could hear from any of you today if you said, on the Christmas service, I became a Christian. And maybe some of you are feeling tugged in that direction, but you, you don't know what to do. Here, very simply, here's how you become a Christian. I, I would say two things. First of all, I'm not going to pretend it's easy. It's not easy to become a Christian. In one sense, it's not easy because what it necessitates is that you humble yourself before God, that you admit your need before God, that, that you acknowledge that actually you've been wrong, you've thought all these years you don't need Jesus, and now you realize you do. You got, you got to admit that. You got to come to, to grips with that. So in that sense, it's not easy. For a lot of people, that's not easy to do. But there's another sense in which it is easy. Because here's all you have to do, sitting there in your chair today, and as we sing the last song, you can do it. You could just sit there in your chair, and you can just talk to God. You don't even have to close your eyes. <laughs> you don't have to bow your head. You, you just talk to God, and you say, God, I acknowledge I'm a, I'm a sinful person. I, I haven't always done what you've asked me to do. Um, I'm not as good as, as, I, as I think I am. And, and I, I need a Savior. And I do believe that you sent Jesus into this world to live and die for me. I believe that. And, and, I, and I believe in his name right now. I, I take Jesus as my Savior. And I say, Lord, help me now to live in a way that is pleasing to you for the rest of my life. Help me to do that. Would you do that today if you haven't? I, I'm a sinner. I believe in Jesus. Help me to live for you. You, you can tell him that in, in just a few moments and become a Christian. It, it, it is that easy. And if that is something you do today, I, I'd love it if you would tell Pastor Brian or, or, or me and we could come alongside and, and help you to grow as a believer. But uh, what a beautiful thing this is that we're talking about. Uh, the Word of God, the eternal preexistent Son of God who becomes man for us, not just to sympathize with us, but to die for us. Praise God. Lord, we thank you so much that um, you have had mercy on us, that you have loved us, that uh, you have uh, not held our sins against us, but you have done the hard things by, by getting your boots dirty and entering into a fallen world to live and die and be raised from the dead for us. Thank you so much, Lord. I pray, help us, Lord, to meditate on these things, uh, to think about these things, that, that in the coming days we wouldn't just be thinking about the food we're eating and the gifts we're getting, but we would meditate and ponder in our heart like Mary did the wonder and astonishing truth of your incarnation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.